Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALWFM 91.7, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. Tonight's program was made possible by our friends at the Labor and Employment Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. On this broadcast, we've spoken many times of some of the nuts and bolts of employment and labor law. Tonight, we dig a little deeper as we hone in on a little-known but fundamental and important tool, the Private Attorney General Act. The Private Attorney General Act has been with us for close to 20 years, but few non-lawyers have heard of this powerful tool used to prevent and correct wrongdoing in the workplace. Why has its use become so prevalent? Is it fair and balanced, or does it tip the scales in one direction or the other? As always, you listeners are always our most important guests. We're eager to hear what's on your mind and answer your questions. You can call regarding any question on tonight's topic of labor and employment law. You're not limited to the exact moment we may be in the conversation. But bear in mind that our guest can't provide you with precise legal or advice without all the facts relating to a given case any more than your doctor can diagnose a stomachache over the telephone. However, we're happy to pass along the legal principles to assist you in your decision-making. And while their guidance mightn't be the positions of their respective clients or employers, they're happy to help, and they're here to help. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And joining us tonight are some of the top attorneys from both sides. Leading management side employment lawyer from Cozen O'Connor in San Francisco, Walter Stella has more than 30 years of experience advising employers and challenging workplace issues and providing practical solutions that minimize legal exposure in a heavily regulated business environment. Representing some of Silicon Valley's most dynamic corporate players, from big tech giants and high-profile tech-adjacent foundations to emerging businesses and ambitious startups. Also joining us tonight, not to be outdone, a member of the executive board of the California Employment Lawyers Association, the statewide plaintiff's employment bar, as well as a section officer of the Labor and Employment Law section of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. Leonard Sansenowicz is the principal attorney of Sansenowicz Law Group in Woodland Hills. Mr. Mr. Sansenowicz's practice is devoted to protecting the rights of California employees. And with that, Leonard, Walter, welcome to your legal rights. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. You know, before we go any further, I'd like to start with a really fundamental question. Just what is the Private Attorney General Act? I'll I'll handle that one. This is Leonard Sansanovich. Thanks, Jeff. Um, So it is the full name of the statute of the law is the Labor Code Private Attorneys General Act of 2004. That means that it's an enforcement mechanism to enforce the labor code, labor code violations, only the labor code. What's in the labor code? Things that affect your wages, your hours, and your working conditions 
in the workplace, things like overtime laws, meal periods, rest breaks, uh, whistleblower retaliation, health and safety, uh, pay stub violations, waiting time penalties in case for not receiving all the pay that's due to you, vacation wages, those types of things. And why did it come about 20 years ago? Well, the legislature took a look at what was going on. Now, right now, we have about 39, 40 million people in this state. So there are tens of millions of workers, which means there are millions of businesses or thousands, hundreds of thousands of businesses for sure. And many of them were committing violations of the labor code. <laughs> at, at the time, the only thing, the only remedies that were available uh, were mostly misdemeanors. And criminal prosecutors were not taking these claims uh, to court. And so that was costing the state um, potential revenue. They estimated at the time between three and six billion with a B dollars. That's 20 years ago. I don't know what that is in today's numbers, but it'd be a lot of money. Um, and those, those penalties uh, are like tax revenue that could go to keeping schools, uh, excuse me, public libraries open, uh, fixing potholes, making sure that there are adequate bathrooms in public schools, that kind of a thing. Um, so this law deputizes private citizens to act as a private attorney general and stand in the shoes of the state agency, the Labor and Workforce Development Agency, that would enforce these penalties and would um, impose them and, and would uh, check up on businesses. The, the state legislature found that this staff, this uh, agency was completely understaffed uh, and didn't have the resources. So uh, think of it this way. Uh, Think of a person standing in front of business with a checklist on a clipboard and a pen and checking off little boxes saying, oh, did you violate that labor code? Did you violate that labor code? Did you violate that labor code? And then for each one, there is a penalty that's assessed. To give you a sense of the numbers that we're talking about here, the default penalty is $100 per aggrieved employee per pay period for the initial violation, and it's $200 per aggrieved employee per pay period for each subsequent violation. So these penalties can add up um, once they're multiplied. Uh, that would apply to say an overtime claim, uh, a rest break claim, uh, something like a meal period claim would fall under a different type of penalty. It's, it's half the penalty, it would be $50 for, per aggrieved employee per pay period for the initial violation and $100 per aggrieved employee per pay period for each subsequent violation. But if businesses are not careful, um, these, these penalties can add up very quickly. And so the purpose of the penalties uh, was to correct wrongdoing in the workplace and improve the work environment for employees. Well, let me ask you, I'm an employee I don't like the fact that they're not posting my rights. They're not putting this stuff up there. What's in it for me? I mean, clearly I'm putting my job on the line to make that complaint, aren't I? Well, the law does protect you against uh, – does protect you for making uh, complaints about uh, your wages, your working hours – I mean, sorry, your working conditions um, and specifically prohibits retaliation. 
that said, I can't control what people do. People retaliate, you know, employers retaliate against their employees all the time, but it is illegal. Um, and then someone like me will come along and, you know, maybe take your case. I did want to point out one thing, though, about the penalties. There is a provision in the uh, statute that so any most of these claims are brought on a representative basis and then they settle eventually. Uh, and when there is a settlement, it has to get approved by the court. A judge has to review the settlement, see if it's fair and reasonable. Uh, one of the things that the judge has in his or her, their power is to lower the amount of the penalties. In fact, specifically in, written into the statute, it says uh, that the judge may not approve an award of penalties um, that, uh, based on the facts and circumstances of the particular case, if they did so, it would be unjust or arbitrary and oppressive or confiscatory. So the point is, is not to put businesses out of business for making, you know, labor code violations, but the penalties have to be stiff enough to deter and punish um, and prevent that kind of bad conduct in the future. Walter, do you take issue with any of what was just said? Uh, well, no, not issue. I think Lenny did a, a very, very good job in describing what the statute is for. Uh, since I'm on the management side, uh, there is a, you know, maybe perhaps a perspective uh, that's brought into this. I, I think, first of all, let me start out by saying that companies who uh, try and comply with the law, that intend to comply with the law, uh, this law in some ways actually assists, right? Because there's a cost involved, as Lenny mentioned, uh, to comply with all of the various uh, labor code provisions that we have in California. And if you're, if you're making sure that people are getting meal breaks, uh, paying premiums when they don't, when, you know, making sure people get overtime, just complying with the wage and hour laws is there's a cost of doing business. So enforcing and ensuring that other businesses are also complying is something uh, that is of value as far as fair competition. With that said, uh, you know, there's certainly a perspective. Uh, you know, uh, I think Lenny mentioned that, yes, a court has discretion uh, to lower, uh, you know, penalties. Typically, these cases settle, uh, at least in my experience, uh, if anything, uh, in my experience, judges aren't lowering the settlement, settlement amounts. Uh, most often, they might even be increasing them uh, if they feel that, it, it, you know, the numbers that were agreed upon are not appropriate. I think from the business perspective, uh, there's also the view that, you know, this, this, these penalties are add-on penalties. They're, uh, you know, there's arrest already, in some instances, penalties that exist uh, in the labor code. There's remedies uh, that exists in the labor code. There's there's procedures. You could go to the labor commissioner. Uh, if you feel you've been wronged, you can go to uh, an excellent attorney like Lenny, and uh, he, he can bring a lawsuit. He, he can bring claims and arbitration, et cetera. Uh, and then there are those situations, you know, it's not every situation, but there are those situations where, uh, you know, to really uh, to bring it down to brass tacks, it's, it's does it, it, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, if you will. These are not criminal; these are civil. But you can have situations where there are these violations of the labor code, not necessarily any any harm that's been caused to an employee, and yet, in the way that was described by Lenny, given that it's per paycheck, per employee, 
you know, $200, the numbers really, really add up. And then to be absolutely honest, as far as the economic analysis is the attorney's fees, not just on one side, it's both sides. It's, it's the cost that a business may face in hiring an, an employment attorney like myself to defend the case and then facing the possibility of paying attorney's fees on the other side because of a violation. That all that analysis, I mean, it, it, when you're talking to a business person, a business owner, cheaper to pay it off, even if it's wrong. That's right. You know, it's it, it, the, the challenge about waiting. I think about, OK, the judge may lower the, the, the penalties, the process before you get to to a judge. If, if there are at least some violations and the cost involved, that's kind of a last case resort in, in many instances. You know, are you going to fall on your sword and hope that the judge uh, does does something to, to save you? And no one can guarantee that. So that it really does come down to this cost. It's this concept uh, from the management perspective that is it really needed? Uh, if, if, if it is, is, is there a better way? Because at least all of the statistics that I've seen is the amounts of money that are being paid are not for the most part, either going to the state or certainly not going to the individuals. There's only 25% of the penalties that Lenny described that are going to uh, the workers. So the amounts of money that are going to, and again, both sides, you know, going to the lawyers, if if this is the method that's been selected, is it really ultimately just at the end of the day, a, a transfer of wealth to attorneys that are involved in is there a better way? And there may not be, but but that's that's the challenge from the business perspective, especially the businesses that are trying to do the right thing. Any violation of the labor code is treated the same way. So it's it's two hundred dollars or it's one hundred dollars, whatever it is, regardless of what that is, whatever the violation is. So it's it's those kinds of issues that I think on the on the defense side and the employer side um, that that we face. And, and, and how we view it. And let me give you a counterpoint to that. So, uh, Jeff, it occurs to me that I didn't answer your question fully. You said, what does the employee get out of it? Well, so the penalties belong to the state. 100% of the penalties belong to the state. But because the state has deputized these private citizens to act as an incentive, it kicks back 25% of all penalties to all of the aggrieved employees. Everybody who has worked there during the relevant time period is going to get a piece of this payment of these penalties. So that's one is is monetary remuneration. But the second is the satisfaction of knowing that you have made a difference in the workplace for you and everybody else, and hopefully for other people who come after you. Now, the problem is that because labor is oftentimes the single largest line item cost to a business, if they can shave labor costs, they can increase profits. So there is an actual perverse incentive for some businesses to continue to cheat, to compete, to continue to violate the law because they'll pay out and then they'll go back to doing what they already did. But the point of these types of representative actions, their strength in numbers for the workers, it's the idea that collectively you can raise your voices and effectuate change and make a, a difference and make improve things for everybody. You know, Walter, you brought up something that I wanted to follow up on a little bit. You brought up about maybe skirting the rules, skirting the labor uh, labor law 
in order to gain a competitive advantage. Is this a, an act that can only be invoked by employees of the business? I mean, what if I own a restaurant and a similar restaurant down the street is violating the labor code left and right and using it to gain an advantage, whether they're undercutting me or whatever it is? Um, do I have any action on it or does it have to come from their own employees? Well, under the PAGA and, you know, as far as labor code violations, it would have to come from the employees. Now, it's possible, when we're going a little bit far afield, uh, that there might be a, what we generally refer to as an unfair uh, business practice type claim among, you know, uh, companies that are doing business and then suing each other over uh, unfair uh, business practices. But in the labor context, it would need to be uh, the employees that bring it or that the business that feels that uh, the, the, you know, the, the restaurant is, is not competing fairly, you could always report, you can always go to a, you know, the, the, the labor commissioner, you can always uh, have someone try to investigate, but that's, that's very different than actually bringing the lawsuit. So we're really looking at the individuals. So if I really want, if I own the restaurant and I wanted to take out the business up the street or at least bring them to a level playing field, I'd be better off hiring one of their employees, maybe raising the rate enough to bring them over and having them file suit against them to bring them up to where we have leveled the playing field. That, you, you, you know, you're, you're better off going to Lenny's uh, office and, and knocking on his door and, and seeing how uh, he might be able to get involved in, in this whole process. I will say, though, um, it does raise a, a quick question or a quick issue of a statute of limitations. These are penalties, keep in mind. So whereas labor code claims for wages, you have a three-year statute of limitations. And if you plead it concurrently with, together with uh, the unfair competition law, you could extend it back to four years. In penalty actions, you only have a one-year statute of limitations. So if something happened and you, and, and by the way, it's, it's one year from the last date that you were supposed to have been paid, not necessarily the last date that you worked. So... If you have an action that you want to bring against uh, a current or a former employer, you don't have to be a former employee to bring a, an action like this. You can try and improve things right while you're working there. And if you are wondering, how does that work with my employer? Well, to, your, to Jeff's question earlier, they're not allowed to do anything to you. And they know this, uh, and they would be foolish to do something to you while you're bringing a claim like this as a representative, uh, because then someone like me or one of my colleagues would turn around and sue them for retaliation. There's a lot of things in law that you're allowed to do unless you're doing it for the wrong reasons, and it sounds like this might be one of them. Sure, they could lay people off if they want to reduce their workplace their workforce, but when somebody's taken this kind of an action against them, it would be rather foolhardy to do it right afterwards and aim it perhaps the plaintiff. Especially when they're under such scrutiny. You know, when, when people are, when, when the judge is looking at their business, why in the world would they take action against the person who blew the whistle on them? You know, does settling a case like this carry a stigma? In, in some areas of law, you really have an incentive to settle because of the cost of the litigation, the cost of all the lawyers, everything else. In other areas of law, you have something that's going to always... It's just going to be something that's on your record. People are always going to be able to find it or look at you funny. Um, in, in medical, for example, uh, there's always a record of it. You really are in a bad place. If you settle a claim against you, you want to 
litigate it and be vindicated. What about in this instance? Does an employer have any stigma upon them if, in fact, they settle a claim against them? Well, the the court has to approve these settlements, and so it'll be a matter of public record. And uh, that is certainly, like at least on you know my side of the uh, line, let's say something that we talk to clients about. I mean, they do worry about it. It really, I hate to give the classic lawyer answer of it depends, uh, but that is always one of the calculations. But you know, let's say the alternative could be worse. You know, what do you, if you don't settle? What do you do? Do you continue the litigation and? incur more costs and fees. I mean, I think the majority, the overwhelming majority of these cases uh, do settle. I will, I will uh, throw out a wrinkle, and this, this is a, a legal technicality. I don't want to go too deep into the weeds, but as Lenny mentioned, the person with, with the clipboard is standing in the shoes of the state, and that's, that's how it needs to be viewed. So that person under our current case law even if there's a settlement with that person. So in, in, in theory, what you've done is settled the ability of that person to get the financial reward, let's say, from the penalties. But that person doesn't lose standing to bring a PAGA action or a different PAGA action. I mean, PAGA, there could be a number of different violations, in other words. So just because that individual settled his or her or their claims doesn't mean that they lose standing to be able to bring a PAGA action. That is something that on the defense side is often considered because these PAGA claims will, in my experience at least, often be brought with wage and hour claim violations. Like, for example, <clears throat> failure to pay overtime or failure to get your meal or rest breaks, et cetera. And those those could be independent claims standalone and getting remedies for those. So when you're settling with a plaintiff, that's always part of the consideration. Now, I will say as a practical matter, I, we haven't seen that. You know, We haven't seen that happen a great deal, but that is something that is uh, part of the equation, part of the consideration for an employer. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we're discussing labor and employment law. In particular, we're looking at the Private Attorney General Act. My guests tonight include employee-side attorney Leonard Sansanowicz of Sansanowicz Law Group in Woodland Hills and employer-side attorney Walter Stella from Cozen O'Connor in San Francisco. Both of these are top-flight attorneys and do fantastic work for their respective clients, but also to educate other lawyers and all of you. And if you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic We're talking about labor and employment law. We're talking about the Private Attorney General Act. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. So I guess this, the next question I would have, we've talked a little bit about what the act is and what it does. Why is it so important? Well, from my perspective, it's 
because it's used to enforce laws that are a matter of public policy, overtime laws. You know, we've all known overtime laws for our entire lives. And it, they started well over 100 years ago. It was actually the suffragettes, women who didn't even have the right to vote, were concerned that children were working more than eight hours in a day. That's who got overtime laws passed. Uh, meal periods. <clears throat> so the legislature, before I move on to meal periods, the legislature has decided that eight hours is sufficient for a full day's work. And if you want to work people more than that, then you should pay them for that time. Their time is worth money. Meal periods. Meal periods have to be taken before the start of the sixth hour, meaning before five hours have passed. So if you start work at eight o'clock in the morning, you have to take your meal period before one o'clock in the afternoon. Why? Because we're not robots. We need to replenish and nourish our bodies. Or we just need a break. We need meal periods. You don't have to necessarily eat. Uh, and the, the employer doesn't have to stand over and, and make sure that you eat. But they have to relieve you of all duties, all work duties, and give you at least 30 minutes of uninterrupted time where nobody bothers you with any questions about the business. Why? Because you need a break. Rest breaks. It's 10 minutes for every four hours work or major fraction thereof. That is paid time. You clock out for meals and then clock back in. But rest breaks are paid time. Why? Because the legislature has decided that that's important to get people to refresh and recharge. All of these laws are there for a reason. Uh, think of it uh, as rules that we grew up with as children, like at the pool, for example. No running on, on the deck at the pool, right? How many times did a lifeguard yell at me and my friends, don't run, don't run? Why? Because somebody had fallen and hurt themselves or somebody could fall into the deep end and, and you know, something bad could happen. These laws are in place for a reason. Uh, laws that regulate health and safety issues in the workplace are there for a reason. And so when we're enforcing these laws, when we're using this this statute as a tool, as a mechanism to enforce these laws, we're making lives better for our workers. And why is that important? Because California has a very robust economy. We're, I think, the fifth largest economy. If we were a country, we would be the fifth largest economy in the world. And what drives that economy? Workers. And when workers are satisfied and paid properly, they pour money back into society. They become consumers. They buy things. And that helps grow our economy. So as a matter of public policy, these are exceedingly important issues. And it's very important to enforce. And that's why the legislature has deputized private citizens to go out and take action against employers who skirt the rules, cheat their employees, cheat the competition, and cheat the state out of the taxes and the other money that they are due. I'm going to vote for Lenny if he runs for office. I, I, I... The expression on your face looked like you had some question. Um, there's, there's some other issues I can see with this. Um, but one thing is it looks 
as though an employer, an unscrupulous employer, might have some incentive. You shave on labor costs. You uh, have an advantage over others who don't. If you're not any diff- no different than if you're not paying your taxes, you have an advantage over others in the industry who might be more honest. Uh, that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, it, you know, what Lenny is describing, I mean, it, it, it certainly that is the purpose of the law. And, uh, you know, as a society, I think, uh, you know, and as a state of California, uh, if we're going to have rules, uh, there needs to be a mechanism to enforce those rules. And I think, you know, the question uh, from my perspective is, is, is this really the correct mechanism uh, are there are there better alternatives? Uh, you know, for example, I mean, everything that Lenny described. When you have a situation where people are not getting their overtime, people are not, uh, you know, getting their meal uh, breaks that they're entitled to, and you do have, uh, you know, Jeff, as you mentioned, an unscrupulous employer that's doing that. And what we have to understand is that the way Pago works is that for I'm going to say lesser violations, for example. You don't have everything that you're supposed to have on a on your check. Um, you know the sick leave. There, there's a labor code provision that for our paid sick leave, the the amounts uh, available to someone has to be on the uh, wage statement or it has to be in a separate statement that's provided at the time uh, payment is made. Now, if if that isn't provided correctly, even if the the employer is doing it all the right way. Uh, has the right sick leave policy, uh, implements it correctly, uh, does everything that is supposed to be done the right way. Well, that labor code violation is a problem. You know, that's still a violation. That still could run up those numbers. And that may not be the punishment that fits the crime. No, and it's just like taking cough medicine. I may want to stop from coughing, but maybe the stuff I'm taking does more harm than good. There's always a balance. We'll get back to that momentarily. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco. We'll be back right after this. Uh, so I'm crouched behind the gate. I'm thinking, ah, I'm university educated. This dumb ram's no math for me. I'll show these villagers. Join us for Stories of Animals. From unexpected encounters to an unexpected return. That's on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. The Moth Radio Hour, this evening at 7 o'clock here on 91.7, KLW San Francisco Bay Area and online at klw.org, where support for KLW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. And if you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar's Association Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. You can call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And let me turn it over to Tony from San Francisco. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Hello. Uh, I'm an attorney, but I learn things by listening to your program sometimes, and I, I do have a question. Um, uh, have you guys uh, heard of, a, uh, have you had an experience with any case 
where an action was brought under whistleblower protection provisions of a federal act like OSHA or the EEO, um, and then added on a California uh, Attorney General Act uh, claim uh, where there was economic loss because of uh, maybe part of the retaliation was, uh, you know, withholding pay or something like that. Um, I'll take that since I'm the plaintiff's attorney here. Um, I, I so I, I think uh, Tony, is it? I think um, you may be conflating a couple of different things. So the whistleblower statute in California, uh, Labor Code Section 1102.5, has uh, damages built into it. Um, but if you're asking, do we bring, let's say, a harassment or discrimination? retaliation type of a claim and a wrongful termination and can you bring a paga action with that the answer is yes and i have done that but um, i think what i think what tony was getting at and tony tell me if i'm wrong but i think what you were saying is where because you brought one their retaliation brings the other so if if the employee or employees brought a whistleblower act particularly a federal whistleblower act or the like does retaliation ever prompt the private attorney general action. Yeah, that's kind of the, the, the essence of the question. And I think, you know, there are some cases where uh, the employer uh, starts retaliating uh, right after the employee even makes internal complaints or or starts talking to the, uh, 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 making noises about wanting to go uh, to an outside agency. Well, remember, this is the labor code, the California labor code private attorneys general act. So, in order to uh, bring a PAGA action, there has to be a labor code violation. So in the scenario that you're describing, you would have to find a labor code section that has been violated. And I was just pointing you to, to 1102.5. And yes, 1102.5 does have a subdivision that does have a civil penalty of $10,000. Um, but the issue with a PAGA claim, well, it's changed a little in the last year and a half because of the United States Supreme Court decision in Viking River Cruises. But um, if a PAGA action is a representative action and you are trying to bring a PAGA action to enforce the civil penalty in the, the Labor Code whistleblower retaliation statute, then you would be representing other whistleblowers who had blown the whistle against this employer. And to my experience, that's pretty rare. So you wouldn't be doing this just on behalf of one client, one individual. So, um, if I'm hearing you right, before June of 2022, I would have said, of course not, never, because it's only a representative action. But unfortunately, because of uh, the United States Supreme Court, things are a little more uh, muddled now um, because there is such a concept as an individual AGA claim. Um, but I have not ever brought a PAGA action on behalf of one person, and I don't know any of my uh, colleagues who have either. Usually how that comes about is when the employer moves to compel an arbitration agreement and they peel off the individual PAGA portion of that and send that to arbitration. But that's a different scenario than what you're contemplating. I see. Well, that's, that's very instructive. Thank you. Tony, thank you for joining us on your legal rights.
And let me turn it over to Jennifer in San Francisco. Welcome to your legal rights. Oh, I heard that wrong. John, are you on the line? Yes, I am. John, welcome to your legal rights. You're on the air. Thank you. This is um, really pertinent. I have used you guys several years back. I am a whistleblower. I witnessed um, uh, a woman came to my class. I taught on a Saturday at a community college in the East Bay. And um, she had been verbally assaulted during the class. I mean, really horrifically verbally assaulted. Uh, and I, having been in the Navy and witnessed this, I had told myself if I ever am in the opportunity to do something about it, which as a enlisted person in the Navy had literally no power to do anything in a very misogynist environment that I was in, I would not look the other way, and I didn't do this. Didn't do that in this East Bay Community College. Coupled with the fact that other women had come to my class and said this same person had verbally assaulted them also, and so I went to the dean, and uh, the dean informed me that women had come to her and told them the same story. And so I made a formal complaint. Well, that put me in the crosshairs. I had crossed the line. Furthermore, I was a part-time instructor. And I felt that I was on the side of angels, uh, plus the fact that with all this Me Too stuff and uh, uh, that I would be protected in some way whistleblowers uh, law uh, nonetheless well I found out quite the opposite all of a sudden I was going up the hill on a slippery slope because I found no one that would help me even the dean who was a woman uh, found herself in jeopardy because I made a formal complaint because the uh the three main instructors and the head of the department were all men. They had been looking the other way over this. In fact, I had taken the place as instructor uh, from this one guy who lost his position purely because he had harassed women. I didn't know this when I got hired. I thought that just a position had opened and I had filled well, well, the position. John, let me ask anyway, you. I went and sought legal help. I made very little money. Uh, and all uh, one guy said I would have to pay him uh, $6,400 up front for him to take me on as an attorney uh, to represent me. But, John, let me ask you, what was the upshot of all this? Um, you were... I didn't get... You were terminated? Dean, I was not terminated. In fact, what the dean told me, he said, they're not going to do something as foolish as terminating you from this because they're well aware of the reputation. Not only this, they, the dean refused to terminate me. I was hired the second semester. Then I was called in to 
uh, for a meeting to clear the air, quote unquote, clear the air. And at this meeting, which uh, with uh, the head of the department, the art department, and uh, uh, the chair and the chairman, and they brought in these letters in our uh, 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 union rulings. We were just published, and it stated that if there were any letters of complaints that were they were supposed to be given to us within the week, and what they presented to me letters that were over a year old, and the people that submitted these letters that were against me had all their names blocked out, and the dean had told me is that the guy that you had forwarded making these uh that you and these women had complained about uh uh john john i get the drift of it i get the drift of it but i gotta i gotta rein it in because we're on the air and time is running kind of quickly did you have a question you wanted to direct to my guests tell you there's no more room on the roster for you there's no space for you in the next semester they don't outright fire you what they tell you is there's no room on the next semester. That's how it works. Uh, and the name of the college is the Apple Valley College. Okay, let's he not get to, let's not get into specifics because you're not well, going to litigate them here on the air. Do you have a question well, for my guests? I understand your yeah. story, and I don't want to sound unsympathetic, but we have a limited time that we're on the air. We have some well, very talented attorneys that are here to help. But there's only so much they can do when somebody takes 10 minutes to explain a story. I'm really asking you at this point, before we end the call, do you have a question for them or anything you would like to run by them? What do you do when everybody's turning you down and they and uh, uh, you go to legal help and they say, oh, uh, we don't do this. I went uh, or we're on summer vacation or we don't do that anymore. And you're just left out on a limb. Where do you, and you, know where, you where did this take place? What just location? Pleasant Hill. Pleasant Hill? Have you tried and the I Contra Costa? Have I missed the last part, San Francisco? I live in San Francisco. Okay. I would recommend you could either try the lawyer referral service of the San Francisco Bar the Bar Association of San Francisco or of I the did. Contra Costa County Bar Association. I've got two they, other suggestions, Jeff. Go ahead. One, the California Employment Lawyers Association, CELA, that's CELA.org, of which I'm an executive board member. There's an attorney search function there. You can uh, press the find a lawyer button and you can look things up by geography and type of case. Um, most uh, plaintiff side practitioners who are CELA members work on contingency fee and not, uh, and not, um, uh, you know, charge up front. But if it's the type of case that a lawyer, uh, you're, you're continuing, John, to get um, uh, feedback from attorneys saying, you know, this isn't really something I can help you with. I would direct you to the California Civil Rights Department, which uh, they rebranded it. It used to be the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, the DFDH. Now it's the CCRD. And ask them if they would investigate. Uh, they can perform an investigation of the college or university and uh, maybe they would make some findings that would be helpful and in your favor. You have a yeah, phone number for me? You can look them up, ccrd.gov, I think it is, .ca.gov. 
uh, yeah, I, uh, well, maybe I can, if there's something at the end of the program, I can look it up. But all I can tell you is that if you see something going wrong with all the hoopla about there's something there for you, if you see something, say something, you're screwing yourself. If you think that you can uh, do something on the side of trying to help somebody down the road or helping a woman, all I can tell you is the tenure track people, both men and women, sided with the tenure track guy, and the guy still working there. And uh, 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 the person and the other women that were being mal- mal- uh, mistreated were just left mistreated, and they ended up getting rid of the dean of the department because she refused to fire me because I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, because I didn't Just look to the other way. Just to put a code on it, it's, uh, the, the website that you're asking for, John, is calcivilrights.ca.gov. That's C-A-L-C-I-V-I-L-R-I-G-H-T-S dot C-A dot G-O-V. John, I'm sorry for your experience, but we do have to move on. I'm sorry you had to experience all that. I hope that calcivilrights.ca.gov, I hope you can look there. And find some solutions. I hope that you find some peace. But unfortunately, our time yeah. is pretty limited. Good luck, John. Good luck to you. You know, when somebody like John calls you, one of the things that comes up, and I know we touched on this briefly, but can you briefly give an idea about what the statute of limitations would be? How long does somebody like John have to act on a claim like his? So a whistleblower claim um, under 1102.5 would have a three-year statute of limitations. Um, Similarly, claims of harassment or discrimination, retaliation for opposing harassment or discrimination under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, the FEHA, that also would have a three-year statute of limitations. Um, And one uh, advantage of going to the CRD the California Civil Rights Department is uh, if you do have a claim um, for retaliation under the FEHA, under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, uh, for claims of discrimination or harassment, um, then you can obtain a right to sue letter. And then you have one year from the date of that right to sue letter to actually file a civil action. So if something happened, let's say in 2022, Uh, You would have until 2025, just before that three years, to file your your charge or complaint with the CRD, then another year um, to bring the lawsuit if you wanted to wait that long. Of course, the danger in waiting a long time is that information grows stale, people's memories fade, you lose uh, critical evidence like uh, documents, particularly when companies, or in this case, the university might have uh, a, re- a document retention policy where they overwrite their documents every six months or so. Uh, so the sooner that you can s- consult with an attorney, uh, the better. There's a, a new bill actually that was signed by uh, the governor that'll take effect uh, since we're talking about retaliation, that'll take effect at the start of the year 2024 um, that uh, when there's any, when there's protected activity, I'm going to refer to it as protected activity, whistleblowing, you know, taking a leave of absence, something along those lines. Uh, what it does is it switches the burden so that if there's an adverse action that's taken within 90 days, 
of that protected activity, then there's a rebuttable presumption of retaliation unless the, the employer can establish uh, a legitimate non-retaliatory reason for it. So that's a new law that's going to be going into effect. Since we're, I know we've gotten a little off subject of the PAGA, but since we're talking about retaliation, I thought I would just mention that because that's uh, something that we on the on the management side and the employer side need to be on the lookout for. Timing is is uh, a, a very important key uh, issue when we're talking about retaliate retaliation type claims. You know, we talked a little bit about PAGA and how it works. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to go through nearly as much as we would have liked. So I think this is a show we will pick up again. But I wanted to ask you, Walter, from an employer's side, what issues do employers see in these claims? Well, uh, again, the the hardest part for employers is the uh, – and I'm coming at this, you know, not from – Lenny's perspective of the employer who's really not trying to do the right thing, but the, those employers who are trying to do the right thing, um, and and having a very heavy burden. It's it's uh, these penalties can certainly outweigh the um, the harm that is is caused on on many occasions. I mean, it really it really depends, but at at the heart of it really does come down to the cost. Most of these cases settle. They settle for very large sums. Um, the A lot of employers are just forced to have to settle because economically they're not able to to afford really ultimately the, the battle. Um, and a lot of these, uh, a lot of the money doesn't really end up back at the state uh, or or the, the employees that are wronged. I mean, uh, the lawyers... Both sides. Again, I'm not, you know, on the plaintiff side and on the defense side, we're the ones that are ending up with the money. And that, that um, you know, may not, that may just simply be a byproduct of the enforcement mechanism. Um, I just don't know if, you know, maybe there's an argument that there's a the better inform, enforcement mechanism. I know that there's going to be on the ballot next year a um, referendum to, to repeal PAGA and to replace it with something else. Uh, so I, you know, and I don't know if I can't say it's a pub by it, it's difficult to, to imagine what would be a better mechanism. I mean, there, there, there there's all, all sorts of arguments, but uh, there is something that that the uh, voters of California will be uh, asked to consider come November of 2024. You know, Leonard, one of the things that I gleaned from what Walter just said is that this is an important thing to an important tool to have but there are times when perhaps invoking this private attorney general act might be like trying to hang a small picture using a a sledgehammer it just might be a bit more brutal than the situation calls for do you find that that is often the case or can be the case i don't find it's often the case um and um i'm kind of smiling because uh, just like Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin years ago on point counterpoint, I've got a completely different take on this. Um, listen, um, <laughs> employers have been trying to kill PAGA since its inception. For the first 10 years, PAGA was used as sort of an add-on for class actions. A class action is different than a PAGA action because a class action tries to evaluate the harms that each individual class member suffered, as opposed to just ticking off the number of uh, labor code violations. 
about 10 years ago, it became more in vogue for employers to institute class action waivers and to try and enforce and graft arbitration agreements into the, uh, into the employment context. And so PAGA has taken on a greater uh, prominence because it's really the only tool left to hold employers accountable for on a representative basis in California. And they know this. And so what Walter is pointing at, uh, some of these referendums, one of them is, for example, to try and uh, incentivize people to settle their PAGA penalties individually with the labor commissioner. Well, individually, people's individual PAGA claims are going to be a lot smaller than in the aggregate. And so employers use all sorts of uh, arguments and techniques to try and, and uh and do away with this statute. Um, and quite frankly, it's it, it can be hanging in the balance pretty soon. Um, so who knows what's going to happen in 2024 on the ballot? Uh, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and, the, and what Lenny mentioned, Jeff, if I may, it, it, just, just so folks understand, with respect to arbitration agreements, because that's really what we're talking about, is that in the law where... Uh, People as well as companies can agree to an arbitration and, and uh, agreement, and in doing so, uh, there are these class action waivers that are built into these arbitration agreements, so that the uh, representative type action that Lenny is talking about would be precluded. In other words, an employee has a claim would have to bring it one on one against against the employer. Uh, the way California law works, though, is that the employer has to pay for the entire arbitration, essentially, uh, which could be very significant in and of itself, uh, that cost. But that would be an alternative process to the to the court procedure. And that's what Lenny is talking about, eliminating that uh, class action component or ability. And that has driven some of the litigation toward PAGA because that still allows that representative action as, as things currently stand under our case law employers can compel an individual to bring his individual or her or their individual PAGA claim into arbitration, but the representative aspect of the claim stays in court. At least that's the way things currently stand, which is probably not a great result. Well, I know it's not necessarily a great result for employers either, because again, it just makes it more expensive. And that's, it's, I think a lot of times for employers in these kinds of cases, it's the tail wagging the dog. It's the expense of the litigation that drives the settlement. Now, I would love to come back, Jeff, a different time and spend an entire show just on arbitration agreements, because from my perspective, it's a rigged system um, and doesn't benefit employees and never was intended to uh, apply to the employment context. But we can save that discussion for another time. I have arbitrated employment agreements um, on rare occasion. And what I've discovered is that the arbitrator maybe the most honest, the most ethical. But the fact is, he sees one side over and over and over, knows them, knows the attorney, sees them again. You're coming in on the other side trying to make a claim, and you're there one time, and they don't really know you. That's not to say that they're biased in favor of the other, but they certainly understand what they're telling them more. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and I want to give each of you a minute or so for any closing thoughts, but we really are down to about a minute or so each. I'll keep it brief. Walter and I were talking before the show, and something that's important to both of us is civility in the profession. 
Um, it's really a treat when you get someone like Walter on the other side, uh, who is a gentleman, uh, who is astute, who's intelligent, who can talk to his client. Um, our job as practitioners is to be dispassionate. We are here not to get um, caught up in the emotions uh, that's driving this dispute, but we're here to try and guide and advise. And when you have um, some attorneys lose sight of that and um, play nasty games with one another, uh, and it really is important in our profession and in all professions to treat each other with civility uh, and, and professionalism. Well, and I just uh, echo Lenny's words there. And, and look, it, you know, it, from my perspective as, as a defense lawyer, uh, it only suits our clients. It, it's only in the interest of our clients. Uh, litigation in and of itself, I think, is an inefficient way to resolve disputes. Uh, to make things harder to, to I mean, certainly, you know, we have an ethical obligation, Lenny and I, to zealously advocate for our clients. And you can do that, but uh, the how, I think, really matters. And it only makes things more expensive for my clients when uh, their the lawyers are just, you know, with egos or whatever it is, just fighting for the sake of fighting. It just doesn't make any sense. But um, so I just echo what, what Lenny has to say. And, and Jeff, thanks for... Uh, giving uh, giving us the opportunity to uh, be on the show today. I think for the three of us, this may be the first of many. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. And tonight, we've been discussing the Private Attorney General Act. Our guests tonight have been Leonard Sansanowicz of Sansanowicz Law Group in Woodland Hills and Walter Stella from Cozen O'Connor in San Francisco. It's that time of year. Are you ready to face the tax man? What should you do before year's end? Please be sure to join Your Legal Rights for our annual year-end tax program next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m., where, as always, we will take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to tonight's guests and to the Labor and Employment Law section of the California Lawyers Association. And on behalf of Your Legal Rights, a big thanks to all of you for listening. And at the controls... Damian D. Minor. I'm Jeff Hayden. Good night and zealously guard your legal rights. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. And if you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's lawyer referral service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Uh-huh.